This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on generosity. I'm joining you yet again from my home office as the University of Pennsylvania continues to keep us all safe by keeping us at home. For those of you hungry for new episodes, you can catch them each week on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and recently aired episodes are being podcasted, so download us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and be sure to follow us on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as at Laura Zarrow, to share the joy and let us know what you're thinking about. These days, data is coming in by just troves of it around COVID. We're learning all kinds of things. But one of the surprising and surprisingly positive things that we're learning about the COVID pandemic is that despite how it's devastated our economy, generosity, especially charitable giving, is adapting in some really interesting ways. Our guest today is gonna help us understand more and what we can do to maximize our own generous impulses while sharing her own brand of insight, inspiration, and wisdom. Eileen Heisman is the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust, which is the largest independent donor-advised fund sponsor and one of the top 25 grant-making organizations in the US. She's a nationally recognized expert on charitable and planned giving and currently listed as one of one 100's top influencers in philanthropy. Eileen teaches a graduate course for those lucky students in philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, and is a periodic lecturer for the nonprofit board leadership program at the Wharton School, and is both a lecturer and member of the National Advisory Board at the University of Michigan School of Social Work. She served as the founding chair of Culture Works Philadelphia for seven years and now serves on the National Social Impact Commons Board. It's a miracle that this woman even has time to be on the show. Never mind the way that she is a mentor to many and one of my favorite guests. So Eileen, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you for having me, even under these very unusual circumstances, because you know what? We're working differently, but we're all still working. We are indeed. So before we dive into these important topics, I want to know, how are you working these days? I think of you as one of the most dynamic women leaders I know, and everybody's had to adapt, some of us in some very surprising ways. So what's your reality like right now? So I get up, you know, the winter was really different when it first started. I was sort of in shock. So I I was getting up later and I was pretty uh, paralyzed. Paralyzed was the wrong word. I'm never paralyzed, but I was pretty shocked actually at what was happening. And I never have been one to like working at home, but I didn't have a choice, right? So I was a little bit shell shocked. And, but I, you know, I kept plowing ahead. I'm, you know, the fear of being bored is one of my big fears in life. And, um, so I just, I had an amazing technology team that had done all this planning because we had been through some storms. So we, I was up and running within a day, less than a day, actually. And I just started plowing through, and I, we created a new way to communicate with people. We used Teams all the time. And, and you know, I used to get dressed from the waist up. I would look really nice <laughs> in my business clothes. <laughs> and then I realized that nobody was really doing that. But 
But so then I, as, as every week by week, I would like incrementally let a piece of jewelry go. And I stopped wearing mascara. I was like, that was a big deal for me. I would wear eyeliner, but no mascara. And then, and I, that's still pretty true, but, um, you know, I have to keep my hair. Look, I have one of those kinds of hair styles and hair that unless I really work at it, it looks terrible. So I still have to look really presentable virtually every day I'm on zoom and every day I'm seen. And I, and I'm really conscious from the waist up or from the waist down. I'm often like capris and like sketchers. And I, it's like, I have these two different bodies, the waist up body and the waist down, <laughs> which is just, and I, um, and I've gotten used to it. There's a part of me that sort of likes rolling out of bed a little bit later and, and not having to drive to work, but, but, but I miss the camaraderie. I really get stimulated by my colleagues. I'm a real idea person. I really, people talk to me. I actually can see ideas. I have all this visualization of ideas. Yes. Yeah. And so I don't see them as much. And I, the visualization is so powerful to me. And I, um, I can see, you know, the, you know, the sixth sense, there's a line in it where it says, I can see dead people. Well, I can see ideas. I can see ideas and colors in rooms. And like, I actually could have been an interior designer or something. I can see colors and furniture and I can see a lot of things. It's really odd. I don't, now I'm old enough. I'm not embarrassed to talk about it, but, um, those, when somebody's talking to me, it's like I see flashes of stuff, like those little light bulbs and cartoons. Does it make like, I'm you miss those. your whiteboard and actually being able to like draw pictures and map ideas out with a group yeah. in the room as much as I do? Yep. Yeah, I do that. I draw. I'm always in my classroom. I They put me in a classroom for two years in the Castor building that didn't have a blackboard. It just had these white, you know, this, that, those rip-off white papers. I said, you got to get me. I need a board. I need a board because I'm always like, you know, in the cl- I think the students kind of think I'm nutty, but I, I, I. I don't like to use decks when I'm teaching. I like to, I like to create right in front of the students of what, what I'm talking about. So, so I miss all of that. I miss all of that. But that being said, we're working at 100%. We're money, a ton of money is coming in. Even more That's is going amazing. out. People are being enormously philanthropic, both on Black Lives Matter and social justice issues and COVID, all different aspects of COVID. So it's really a privilege to be a vehicle for philanthropy. And the thing that was amazing to me, and I, I'm sure you remember this, about what was essential services. Well, yeah. grant makers early on were considered essential services. So we were allowed to be open. So that was wonderful. It's like you're the not-for-profit bankers. Yes, that's right. I always say I run a charitable savings bank is what it feels like. So yes, <laughs> that is correct. So actually, for people who are not familiar with the National Philanthropic Trust, tell us in a nutshell what it is that you do. We primarily manage donor-advised funds, which are funds, individual funds that are under our umbrella. So we own all the money in the funds, but there are these sub-accounts that are called donor-advised funds, and individuals or corporations, but 98% of them are individuals, create these, name them, and then make grants from them. And it's a competitor to, or not a competitor, complementary to a private foundation. So if you think of why and when somebody might create a private foundation, same thing with the donor advice fund. And we call them DAFs, which are a terrible name, DAFs, because it's just a shortcut. But but they are um, charitable savings accounts. And some people treat them like savings accounts and other people treat them like checking and that they just spend them all down. Some people treat it like it's going to go on for years and years and other people just spend it down. But most donors, interestingly, 
don't know and don't keep track of whether they're spending out 5% or 10%. So we spend out of our corpus about 20% a year. And because of COVID, I think our numbers this fiscal year are going to be over 25% of our corpus. What does that turn into in dollars? Wow. So we gave out a billion dollars um, last year. This year, it'll it'll be north of that. We don't have the numbers yet because we I, my accountants can't the my chief financial officer can't stand it when I quote numbers. We don't have the numbers yet, but we we think our payout's going to be about twenty percent higher than it was the previous year for two reasons. One is we we raise more money, but the other thing is because um, COVID just in, dramatically in months that we normally would have not sleepy grant making but quieter grant making patterns, we had actually had to redeploy staff in the same way we do in December to cover the grant demands um, in March and April because the, um, there was people couldn't get the money out quickly enough. Eileen, there's so much in what you just said. So I want to pause to highlight a few of those key elements. So one is, um, and while we're not going to, you know, um, hold you responsible for the specific dollar amount, I want listeners to realize that you're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars. You're talking in the neighborhood of a billion dollars of annual giving, which is impactful giving. Um, And that there's always the need for this kind of philanthropy, but we are in a massive global crisis. So as a leader, you were talking about that, that quick redeployment, the way that, that you mobilized in a different way. Take a step back for a minute. And I loved how before you were telling me like what the first day was like in lockdown. I also <laughs> love hearing like I'm not the only one who stopped wearing makeup. And as um, Sally Krawcheck <laughs> notes, um, that is a tax that we all pay to go to work as women and that maybe we'll be freed from it. But we can come back to that <laughs> later. But quite importantly, how as a leader did you step into this, take this moment, you and your team, to figure out, um, once you knew you were all working from home, how did you figure out what you needed to do and then shift gears so that you could mobilize quickly enough to start to meet these urgent needs? You know, I I always think of being a mother as being able to turn on a dime, that you can turn on a dime. I, I, I do absolutely believe that. I mean, there's nothing as distracting as a kid who's just gotten sick or you have to change a diaper or something happens and they, you know, they fall down the steps. I don't know, whatever. And you just, so it was like, oh, this is my new reality. It was, I almost felt like, oh, okay, this is the new normal. I didn't say that yet because I didn't know how normal it was going to be, but it was like, oh, we have to do this for a little while. Okay. Like that was like, it took a nanosecond. Just clutch and in, I, switch gears and go. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. And I've been that way since I was a little kid, I think. Um, and then it was like, okay, what have we done similarly to the, this? So then I re- remember, because I'd been at these meetings, and I would, these meetings were so painful to make some an idea person. We would sit and go through our disaster recovery plans, disaster, like for, for when we had a snowstorm or we lost electricity, which have both happened. And so we had these intricate plans that I have people that have worked here for years, and they, this group met quarterly. And I used to meet, I used to go to most of the meetings, not all of them. And I would sit there, and I couldn't wait for them to be over. 
Well, guess what? <laughs> Every one of those meetings was a was a piece of what got got us up in place so quickly. And you know, my furniture in my house was the hardest thing to do, and that was you know, it took that took me about three or four weeks, or maybe even I just still got something yesterday a couple of days ago. But is is just to say, okay, what do we have to do? And everybody, you know, we knew everybody had to take their laptops home. We had a VPN in place. We had um, the re- ability to have remote interface with all of our databases and everything and Salesforce and all the tools that we use that are all are protected with all the security. And then I had a really um, nervous board who wanted to know. So for the first time in 24 years, I weekly reported into the board about what was going on because they were so nervous about whether we were going to be able to uh, function as usual. And within 24 hours, we were functioning. And, you know, the teams had to create a sense of camaraderie. So every manager you know, the senior managers had to create it with, and then middle managers had to create it. And, um, and we're still checking in on that, but it was like, okay, you know, the money's coming in and money's going out and we <laughs> don't have a choice. And, and it's, it's helping the very problem that was causing us to, you know, work remotely. So it was just essential. And I don't know that everybody was as fluid as that, but my COO, who's a woman who worked in financial services, she she's exactly the same like she just like we never nobody ever said this is too bad oh my gosh I'm really upset like I never heard that from anybody really and so we just I heard from people who lived in one bedroom apartments with roommates to save money and center city that were you know in their bathrooms or kitchens trying to work on laptops like I heard things that you know I heard people that had kids who couldn't go to school anymore how are we going to those were the problems we ended up having to really have iterative okay what are we going to do what are we going to do um, and so those ended up and even now you know it, we still have people that don't we have a handful of people that don't like working at home it's not convenient and so we're you know what is it that we can do to make them more productive so I just you know, and if, if tomorrow we had a vaccination and we all had to come back, you know, we're, you know, it's like, okay, I'll do that. I mean, you know what I was talking <laughs> to my, I just have to say my, my dad was loved gadgets and he used to read um, popular science and popular mechanics all the time. And if he saw a new gadget that was affordable and we weren't wealthy at all, he would just say to me, see, he'd say this, I'd say, yeah, I was a little kid, but not that little. And he'd say, let's go get this. Let's go get, and, and he'd say, get your coat on. I'd say, okay. And we'd go out and we'd go out and buy this gadget, whatever it was. You know, the first air conditioners or the first remote control TVs or like things that were like cool at the time. And so I just have this mentality, which is like, you, you just, you just get up and go. Right. You know, just give you it just, a whirl. You know what? Just jump. My daughter was in stunt school, and she and sometimes you just have to jump. I ha- I play a lot of games of solitaire online, not like Klondike, but really weird games. And there's these games you can like over plan in your head. You can try to do like ten steps ahead. And then I have this mantra in my head, and I say, Eileen, just jump. Like just, just make jump. the first move. Just jump. <laughs> so, first of all, one of the key things that um, I can totally relate to was the the way that. Um, you had to get everyone functional at home. Those disaster plans that everyone dreaded making, dreaded being on committees that had to write them and update them, (laughs) proved to be incredibly valuable. So a a big shout out to all those people who sat in those conference rooms, dredging through a million details. We love you. We're grateful. Um, But that also one of the things that you had to figure out was how to sustain team camaraderie, especially when 
the people who were going to find it hard to work from home were not necessarily who you might have expected. Um, you know, the, the young people on your staff who are living with other people and have lives that seem relatively unburdened um, now are phenomenally burdened because they have no private space. Never mind okay. that we never thought that the moms or the dads were unburdened, but now it's just that much more so having to homeschool and work remotely. So two questions. I'd like to know more about how you created and are sustaining a sense of camaraderie when people are scared and stressed. And then in particular, um, the ongoing process of how to make this work for the people that are really challenged. So first, how did you keep spirits up? So we didn't play games online. There was a little bit of that. So every department sort of took the camaraderie goal on their own. So we really encouraged people early on to have a lot of small meetings on teams and to have their cameras on and to see each other. So we had... Um, we called them huddles. So we would, every department would have these huddles and we'd really increase it. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but the year before with teams, we had something like 400 in-person meetings and the same amount of time, we had like 6,000 or something. Like people are meeting all the time and looking at each other. And, you know, and when I see, you know, Patrick Bennett, who manages our contributions, who's been here for years, he's one of my favorite people on staff. And I don't see him very much, but I just saw him the other day and he looks exactly the way he looked. So, so it was a really realistic feeling. And we just encouraged folks to not to really to use the visual tools. Um, we, as we got more comfortable in the, in the routine, we had fewer huddles. And then all of a sudden people were saying we're meeting too much, right? So then we kind of leaned it down a little bit, but then certain departments that we call transactional that, are, that people work in pretty solitary ways. They've really said that they felt like they needed more, you know, more interaction time. So we're actually working on that now. And then there's other folks who do the sales or the, the services to our donors, and they're always talking. So, you know, they were annoyed by having too many meetings because they're talking anyway, right? So the needs of any individual department could be, are they introverts? Are they extroverts? Is their job solitary or is it a something group or do they dealing with the public or are they just dealing with? So all those things like had to be managed and I yeah, of course I mean, didn't manage all of them that was a lot I mean so it's, <laughs> like it's a work in progress it's just still a work in progress I think that's I love that you sorted that out because one of the things that has been becoming more and more clear to me through this whole process is that the answer isn't one answer it's multiple answers and you select which one makes the sense most sense for the circumstances like I've been long been an advocate that mom should be able to work from home not prevented from work working from home and not have to work at home. But it's when you have the option that you can actually be most effective because you can adapt to these circumstances. And I love hearing how you tuned into the team to recognize some people needed each other and some people needed Zoom to just go away. So once you, it sounds like you kind of moved into this way of adjusting and you're still doing it, but that at the same time, you not only had to figure out how to function, but also how to prioritize things and what you were going to do as an organization when you at you, at the core you give away money to a world that is exploding with need how did you pivot and prioritize um, what was going to get served and how so we're in a unique position as a grant maker and that our donors are advising us on where they want to give the grants to so we don't tell them, but what we did do is we launched a huge public information 
led by blogs mostly, of places where donors could give if they wanted to. And so if you go on our website, and it's called The Philanthropist is the name of the blog, we have a woman named Joan Almaraz who does, does all the writing there with, um, with, a, with the head of philanthropic services, Jenna Barrett. And they have done an, a great, an amazing job, a great job at, at creating a framework for how to think about it and, and places where you – entities that you might want to give. So we never just recommend one place. We always recommend several. And then we look at the problem from several different angles. So if you're reading through the blogs, you'll see that we're providing content. And the thing that's cool about this content is it's for our donors, but it's also for the public. So you don't have to be a donor to access it. And it's really – when you measure the hits, the SEO, the search engine optimization, right? That's the cool word. Um, it's really been enormously tapped into by lots and lots of different people, which is just great. And so we give this framework, but donors, if they didn't like that advice or never saw it or got to it, they were just figuring it out on their own. And you, and you and I talked about, have talked about this before, but you know, there's some people that like to fund prevention or they like to fund research. Other people want to ameliorate human suffering that's happening right now, either the sick people or the frontline workers. So this is one of those problems where there's you know, four or five places where you can put your money, all of which will be tremendously useful, very different from each other, but all needed. And so every donor who's going to be giving had to think through that. Now, a lot of them don't think like I do, because I've been in this business for a long time, but it was really interesting to see the range of where people were putting their money inside the COVID problem, because it's a complicated issue and it's very multidimensional. What patterns were you seeing that surprised you? Um, was there giving going in certain directions that you didn't anticipate? Well, there was a lot of money going to frontline workers for for equipment, the protection mm-hmm. equipment. There was a lot going for ch- for like childcare, like their support. And then there was a ton to feed them. People were really interested in feeding the frontline workers. It was interesting. That this was fascinating because this isn't. This is a reflection of what people perceive the problems to be that they think they can solve exactly. by making a gift. That's right. And it could be based on whatever radio or TV show or article I just read. It could be that they knew somebody who was suffering from that issue and that they realized they had to, to get to it. Or you know, So that was – that went on for a while, and then we had, you know, we had donors who wanted to get money to a place very quickly. Like the, the frontline people needed food, and we had one donor call us at the last minute, and he was trying through some other entity. I don't even know who it was, another charitable giving entity, to get food to frontline workers in in the Bronx or in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, I guess. And um, he couldn't get it, and we got it within a day. We got the money so they could get fed, and and so there was this whole care taking care of the caretakers mm-hmm. and it was really compassionate but then there was a whole bunch of other people that were funding vaccine research you know who they wanted they wanted to stop the pandemic they wanted to figure out you know or 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 they guess they called clinical care that ameliorate the, the symptoms of people that have it and so those folks were looking at the problem in a completely different way they were looking at and how to you know how are we going to get rid of this horrible disease and how you know how quickly can we get people better who are sick and that's a very different way to to, to look at it and 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 I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I mean, and I, you know, people are driven and emotionally sometimes they're driven by data. Other times they're driven by the latest article they saw. I mean, when CNN does a piece on something, you know, and they make it really compelling, it's in many cases it's making a case for a donor to give money in that area because that's have, the way I want to help. 
I have to confess, I was actually watching Jimmy Fallon one night and he had Alec Baldwin on and they were talking about um, food scarcity in surprising places, particularly he was talking about the Hamptons at that time, places where a lot of affluent people live, but recognizing um, all of the people who live there, who the teachers and the people who work for the fire department and the people who keep the grocery stores running, um, what was how economically devastated they were. And it inspired me to give to my own food bank here in the Philadelphia suburbs. And so it's um, both a shout out to say, you know, that kind of communication and making visible needs is hugely important, but doesn't it also then create this trend where our doll, our donor dollars go, where they've been wooed by what people are consuming in the media. Absolutely. I mean, the media has a huge influence. Your friends can have a huge influence. Uh, somebody who's a famous person you might follow, you know, if Angelina Jolie, I mean, gave to something, it might motivate people to do that. So it, it's charitable giving is is not a science in that people tend to give emotionally they tend to give to things that either are familiar to them or or, or somehow resonate with them through a media hit so um it's a fundraising i'm actually a fundraiser by training so fundraising you know really good fundraiser will find ways of making emotional connections to donors to get them involved i think they stay involved because of data and 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 results, but I think getting involved the first time or the first few times is often a very emotional decision or just an impulsive. But I don't know if I believe in impulse. I think impulse is a combination of experience, knowledge, it, you know, your your family and friends, things that have happened to you. I, impulse is a, you know, is it, you know, this it's like intuition, right? Intuition is is based on information. I mean, but we call it intuition because it comes to us sometimes very quickly. So I think fundraising, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I know people who really dislike the fact that it's emotional, but I don't because I think people, well, I think people's emotions run the gamut all the time and they're different when you're 20 than they are when you're 40 and 50. And so there's this whole trajectory of how you give in your 20s and I give in your 30s and what decade you're in and how what you're doing in your life and your philanthropy reflects that. And I think that's great, actually. Actually, to hear that people are starting with their heart and that and that's what's sparking the generosity. It's a pretty amazing thing. Eileen, as you talk about all these different experiences that you've had, the things that you learn from the staff, the way that you're leading your staff, one of the things we're benefiting from is that you've been doing this for a while. You're well into your career. You earned your leadership role. If you're like anybody else that I know, though, it didn't happen without occasionally having a couple of missteps, without making the mistakes that help you learn. When, or encountering the kind of adversity that is external and you still got to recalibrate how you're operating. How have you, in the course of your career, learned to recover, learned to fix mistakes and move on? Because the fact that you're here today says to me, you had to have figured it out. So I have a philosophy that I use for myself, but for my, you know, my employees and but sort of what what did what do you know when did you learn it and what did you do so what do you know when did you learn it and what did you do and it's particularly useful when something's gone wrong or there's been a hiccup somewhere where you need to examine your own behavior or what and i realized that on ethical issues or issues that felt to me that they were right 
it didn't feel right. It didn't sound right. It, and or, or I absolutely, I would, I would use that standard of what did I do and when did I do it? And I would react quickly. Usually I, I would always be double checking. We have a pretty active risk program here. So I was always checking myself and what was going in the organization, the things that I knew here and in other jobs. And I would often disclose it to whoever, what the most authority figure around me was, is this just happened? I'm not really comfortable with it. I don't know why. Sometimes I did know why, but, and I'd say why, and, and that I'd make it a collaborative decision as quickly as I could. And so I didn't, especially if I was really uncomfortable, other things were just learned in, in I mean, I, the first time I managed somebody, I didn't really realize that management was like carefully done. So I thought I had this job and part of my job was just to manage this person. It was an administrative assistant and that that wasn't really my job. My job was to do this task. And I was actually running a campaign, the finance. I was a finance director of a political campaign and she quit at lunch one day and she left me like the 12 page handwritten letter. And it was one of those incredible wake up calls of my job wasn't managing was part of my job. And I just used to think if I could just get, push that aside, I could get my job done, which was to raise money for the campaign. And I just realized <laughs> that I just didn't have a clue that the human part of management was gonna make the organization better and that paying attention to talent and what they needed to do their job and all those things. And I look back on that, I remember being horrified and she had a list of all these things that she didn't feel was she was treated fairly and she didn't like the commute and there's a lot of things that she didn't like that I had no control over but I just had a wake up call and I just realized I better learn these I, I don't think management is intuitive at all actually I don't think it is I don't think it's like being a parent I don't think it's like being a ch I, I I don't like think it's like being anything and I think you have to learn it and if you learn it by having really good managers and you are trained and educate yourself it becomes easier and easier but uh, people are so different like even if you learn it you know how you treat people every day your staff is so different and who likes what and how they learn and how they take in information and all those things count. So I'm in a constant kind of triaging, checking in. And I, my, I love emotional intelligence and looking at body language and trying to figure out what people want and need to do their jobs well. So it's the most complicated thing I do. So I look back at that hiccup and realize the most complicated my job was making sure that the people around me had the tools they needed and, and I, you know, and could take the time off relative to their lives. And I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. And I work really hard at it now. And if you ask people around me, probably they'd still, they'd say, you know, she, I don't know what they'd say. I hopefully they'd say nice things, but I really, really spend a lot of time paying attention to what people need around me, a I mean, lot. I love that you've shared that because I now see it through two different lenses. Obviously, Wharton People Analytics, the whole Wharton School, we take management very seriously as a science, not just an art form, and um, essential to healthy organizations. But I also entered the nonprofit world coming out of art school and being trained with subject matter, subject matter expertise that then got developed in the workplace and applied to a variety of things. And I think there are a lot of people who work in the not-for-profit center, the not-for-profit sector who come to it because they have subject matter expertise from various disciplines. And um, we also see that many women are 
enter philanthropy and not-for-profit work because um, it's attractive to them. They're welcomed in. They don't face the same biases that they do elsewhere. So for those people that don't have the benefit of the business school background, who don't have the benefit of being explicitly taught about management as an essential part of their toolkit, what advice would you give to young people who are entering the not-for-profit sector because they are passionate about the purpose? How can they develop those skills? I would, you know, with YouTube, it's unbelievable. You can learn almost anything you want. You can change the uh, your tire, right? I mean, you can figure out how to, <laughs> somebody told me they could change. One of my employees told me they changed the belt in their dryer at their house. I said, you did what? How? And he said, I just looked at a YouTube video. So I think there's a ton of training out there in the world. I learn better by that kind than I do by reading. But if you're a reader, you know, reader, do both. Um, have a mentor, find an informal mentor if you can. You know, the other thing, and I learned this from one of the bosses that I disliked the most. I had two bosses that I really, really disliked. And part of what I did was I took an inventory of all the things they did to me and to other people when I was working for them. And I, and I created the opposite, you know, strategy, <laughs> which is, I don't want to, I don't want to treat anybody the way I was treated. So when I'm, if I'm ever a boss, I'm going to do this instead. And I've, I've tried to stick to those things. So I remember what it was like to not feel heard or to, you know, my deadlines were ignored or I produced something really substantial and it, you know, nothing happened or there was this, you know, whatever, my work wasn't recognized or I, you know, a lot of things that I wish that, that, you know, at those moment in times that I would have been at least nodded, you know, I, so I, I would do all those things. And, and, and then, Anytime you can listen to any of those Coursera's, you know, the free courses, I mean, I would do that. When I was younger and I was trying to learn the philanthropy world and my, my place of employment would not pay for the educational things and I wasn't making very much money, I would pay for it myself. So I would pay for myself to go to conferences. So there's a lot of one day management things you can go to and you need to just keep layering those things on because it never ever stops. I. I went to Carnegie Mellon University as an undergrad and I studied multi-complex decision-making and how people learn and memorize things. And I have to say, I hearken back to that information all the time because if my, my colleagues aren't learning and I'm not learning, you know, the organization doesn't advance. And so I watch how people learn. I watch how people take in information and I try to make sure that we have all these different mediums people can use. And when somebody says, well, I told them that, and I said, well, maybe they need to hear it again. You know, not everybody learns the same way. I, and I repeat these things because I think they're important. And, um, and I think people ha can be pretty myopic. Like if they learn a certain way, they think everybody learns that way. Well, that's just not true. So part of you has to figure out that you're, you have many, many, many um, audiences around you that are, that are learning all different things in all different ways. And, and you have to be really adaptive. So I, I love that about people, but, um, you know, it requires that, you know, it's not a cookie cutter moment managing. It's really not. When you and I were talking on the phone a couple of days ago, one of the things that we started talking about was arts and culture and that the arts, and, you know, as we were just saying, if it wasn't for um, all the programming on Juneteenth and Ava DuVernay's, you know, 13th, I think I'd be fundamentally different if I hadn't seen that recently. The arts have this tremendous power to educate. How is the arts and culture sector doing? And where can philanthropy help them help us? 
they're doing terribly. I mean, the audience, you know, a lot of the revenue comes from audiences, whether it's museum or performing arts, um, and it, people can't gather right now, so they're suffering tremendously. And all these Zoom activities, a lot of them are doing it just to keep the creativity going, but they're, you know, the Kimmel Center lay people off. I've been involved with the art and theater for a long time. You know, they canceled their season. You know, it, you know, I mean, any arts organization in Philadelphia has suffered. And, and I, you know, the, the cultural, they, they did a cultural COVID fund at the Philadelphia Cultural Alliance, which I actually, I think I gave money to once or twice during the, the COVID. But um, I, it, it's terrible. And I think that that kind of storytelling when, is so important. I think that people that see a play or a movie or something that tells the story of human suffering of another person, of another race or gender or whatever, all of a sudden it's so real in a way that if you just read a headline, it's not real. And, and so NPT was trying to figure out how they were going to manifest their social justice um, shift. and what. So instead of us giving a grant out, and we don't make discretionary grants ever really, we gave each of our employees $250 to give to a social justice organization. And I wanted to give to an arts organization that gives social justice, that tells social justice stories. Because I feel like it's a way you can shift people in the way they think. And it's, I think it's a, I don't know, say it's less painful. Maybe it's more painful. But I think when you see somebody suffering who you identify with, that you, all of a sudden you're suffering too. And, um, and then you might think differently when you see somebody in the play and then you see somebody on the street that looks like them or reminds you. And then all of a sudden, you know, your world is, has, has had a shift. And I, and I just, I, it wasn't easy to find. And, and you know, they said, no, no, don't do that. You have to give, there's these organizations that give right to, you know, that's directly to social justice. And I said, but I think that art around social justice is as important. And um, and so I ended up not finding one quickly, and I didn't give to one, but I'm, I'm still going to be looking because I just believe that that it's so, storytelling is, a, is, is, is an age-old way, parables. I mean, think of all the ways that, that the Bible or your family has these stories they pass on, and 90% of them have a lesson in them, right? There's a lesson in them. And so I just think that we need to think of all different ways to develop microaggression issues, and I think storytelling is one of them. Eileen, I couldn't agree with you more. For those of you who just tuned in, I'm talking with the amazing Eileen Heisman. She's the president and CEO of National Philanthropic Trust, and I'm Laura Zarrow. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. So Eileen, in that as you were speaking in such an eloquent way about the importance of the arts and the power of the arts, you also let slip a little um, leadership um, thing that you did, which I want to come back to because that sounds super potent and interesting. So you gave money to your employees to give away? Tell me more. Is yeah. this something you do all the time or is this special no. to this time? <laughs> it was really special and it was really special. And I, I think because, I mean, people don't always think of Jewish people as being a minority, but I've always felt like a minority, always. And um, and when I thought, you know, this idea of what NPT could do, and we did this letter, but it wasn't enough to do a letter. So, you know, why don't we do a grant? And then why, and I thought, well, why don't we give everybody, because we do donor advice funds, or donors are always making grant recommendations. So here was a way that we could have our own employees have the experience of what our donors are doing every day. And then this whole idea of researching grants and who are they going to give to, and it was for social justice. And, and um, 
And then somebody wanted to have it done by the end of the fiscal year. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, this is too important to force somebody to do it in 10 days. I said, if it's going to take somebody three weeks to research it, let them take three weeks. So we and then we had, we created a like a listserv on teams um, that people could share ideas. So employees who had ideas or if they wanted to do a grant together, they could combine their $250, $250. So people did all different things. I actually ended up giving mine to Bread and Roses, which is an organization in Philadelphia that I've known for years. And one of my employees who used to be my teaching assistant at Penn and took my class, who I just love, Trina Middleton, is on the board there. So I, I I made a grant there because I know their work and I really trust it and believe in it. Um, but I but I still want to do the arts piece. So people were so excited. It was so meaningful to me to do that. If we had just done a $25,000 grant that just like whatever the senior team had decided or a small group of, of uh, employees, it wouldn't have had the same impact as every single person doing it. So it was great. And you know what? I was excited for myself. I really liked doing it too. So it was, I had so much positive feedback and people that have probably never been a grant maker in their life all of a sudden had a chance to do what we do. So with this kind of sounds like rather spontaneous, um, seems like relatively simple thing. It sounds like you sparked a whole number of things. One was that um, you diversified giving so that lots of different organizations could benefit. You also created a kind of um, brain trust collectively about where what the options were for giving so, and that people could learn from each other. That's right. And and we had done a blog on this, a couple blogs. So we actually let people look at the blogs and we had links to all the organizations. And then people that found their own independent organizations would put the links up in this internal listserv that we had. So if you completely weren't sure, you we gave people a lot of resources to do it. And some people some people defined it very narrowly. Other folks defined it really widely. One or, one woman who works here really wanted to join with other people. So instead of giving 250, four of them could give a thousand. And so there were things like that going on too. So they invited me to do that, but I really wanted to give in bread and roses. So I didn't do it. And then I was upset because I thought, well, maybe they're mad at me, but, but I felt confident that, <laughs> so <laughs> that tell, I was okay. <laughs> for those people who don't know, what, what is bread and roses mission? What do they do? Bread and Roses is basically a social justice organization. They have donor advised funds like we do. They're Philadelphia based and they focus on low income and marginalized communities in Philadelphia. They were progressive way, way, way before any of this was happening. They're probably 25 or 30 years old. I think they started when I worked at the Philadelphia Foundation and they've been around and they've had great leaders and I've known a number of them. And, um, you know, we have a very mainstream, very large philanthropic table, I call it, where anybody can sit. You can be liberal, conservative, you can be global, you can be local. But Bread and Roses is a very Philadelphia-based progressive organization and they've been working on social justice issues for a long time. And one of the things I do know about philanthropy is that people have been on the ground for a long time and know what they're talking about. They just know better than I know, right? So, I, you know, one of the things about the world I work in is there's a lot of people that are experts on things. They want to know what the highest performing organization is. Talk to one of them because they immerse themselves in it. Did you see any surprising patterns in where your staff chose to give? So I never have seen all the data because there wasn't like a checklist of right or wrong. But I probably, I mean, I, I can ask the uh, the finance office out when um, I I just know anecdotally from what I heard, people were choosing like I, a few arts organizations. Um, 
you know, the Black Lives Matter, a lot of national organizations, a lot of people pick what those that they thought were moving the needle, um, those that had legal legal fund. I think the um, I think the NAACP has a legal fund that does a lot of advocacy mm-hmm. work. There was some some that were concerned about law enforcement um, law enforcement issues because, of course, the George Floyd thing prompted a lot of this. So they were all over the place. And I, you know, and I never got a report because I didn't want people to feel like Big Brother was watching. Big Brother was not watching. Um, I wanted them to feel like they were, could do something in the moment of great social pain. They could do something. I hope that once you find out where everybody did it, you share the news because I think it's an inspiring story for other leaders about how to help your community, um, contribute to the world around them and and have the contributions reflect their concerns. It's really amazing, I mean. So I want to switch gears, though, because I have a question. One of the challenges that I think we all face, whether it's our own budgets, whether it's when we're leading not-for-profits, is how we balance long-term needs and short-term needs, how we um, deal with crises when things are bleeding and on fire, which they literally are, people are dying daily. And also how to make sure that organizations that are potent, but yet a little fragile are around a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now. How are you guys managing this with your donors and also with the organizations that you partner with? So um, most organiz- most charitable organizations have less than 60 days of operating capital and some have less than 30 so char- the charitable sector is really starving when it comes to long-term capital. And the other thing that starves it is that donors have created this dislike over the last 15 years of giving to quote-unquote overhead, which often include money for a reserve fund or training for staff or strategic planning, things that are really important for charity. So the demonization of overhead has been one of my pet peeves, and it's terrible. And and these reserve funds, which means that the charity makes a little more money than it needs year to year, day to day, month to month, has a place to put it. So for a rainy day, they can actually, you know, weather that okay. Well, if you think of less than 60 days of operating capital, we've been in retreat way more than 60 days. So a lot of charities got PPP loans. Some found private loan sources. The same as to small and women-owned, minority-owned businesses. And and um, and and some charities probably aren't going to survive. There's estimates that 20 to 30 percent of the ch- small charities, even some large ones, just aren't going to be able to make it through this because they just didn't have enough capital. And the nature of fundraising has gotten really, really difficult. So um, that means that the it, problem then is on two levels. So whatever mission those organizations were serving, that those needs don't get met. And all the people who work there are then out of work. That's right. And, and the charitable sector employs about 10% of the workforce, which is pretty large. And we already have this big unemployment. Um, so I know there's been layoffs in the Philadelphia sector and around the country. I think the thing that's really scary is that this is not the Darwinian survival of the fittest moment. This Your favorite charity could be a small startup who's created a new problem-solving tool to, to hit a problem, and they might be the ones going out of business, and maybe the bigger charities might have enough. Maybe they're less creative because they get to be more, they're more bureaucratic when they're bigger. So it's not like the ones you want to have go out of business are going. It could be the most important ones are going out of business, and the ones that are staying in maybe are, are older. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pinpoint this does a better job than that, but you know that 
that there's a natural attrition sometimes of things that you want to have disappear. But this is a very unfair, unequitable, strange way to be losing charitable organizations that are doing great work and just maybe they just weren't old enough to have figured out how to have a reserve fund. So I think the PPP loans were have bridged it for some organizations and some were able to get donors to give them money, but a lot aren't. And it's really scary. And I, the pro, we don't, we, we don't have the data yet. So we're in the middle of trying to figure out what's really happening with this problem. So we don't know yet. So in the short run, I'm going to risk oversimplifying this. Yes. I'll often hear um, donors talk about that they want it, the difference between giving seed money to grow something new versus giving to something that something's established. Where do they either know that their money is safe and it's and there's a track record that it's used responsibly versus where they can make a difference by making their donations. Um, how can donors go about finding where those ideas are that promises the, the organization that's meeting a unique need, yet it's new or nascent or not as funded as some of the other um, you know, pillars of the philanthropic community? Those are the hardest to find. I think if you're a donor and you're looking for emerging new organizations, they're harder to find. So um, one of the things you can do is you can go to the grant lists at the private foundation. So private foundations, and, and, I, and we're a public charity, so we do it too, but ours are different, given out differently. So when you go to a large private foundation that has staff, they are required to publish all of their grants every year and their tax filing. It's called their 990PF. That's every private foundation files one of those. And in that, every grant is listed. So if you know, for example, an organization is good at funding the arts, a grant maker, or a grant maker likes to do the environment, you can go to their 990 and look to see what they're funding. And they have program officers that vet these entities carefully and do site visits and look at their financials and interview the staff and, and will go out on site visits of the, what they're doing at the front lines. That's the kind of research that most people can't do individually. So if you want to know what's going on, community foundations are a great, great way to find emerging organizations and private foundations, they're really immersed in their community. So if you're in Philadelphia, look at the William Penn's Foundation, 990 PF. Um, you know, Pew's not really in Philadelphia as much anymore, but the Bartle Foundation and the Arts, I mean, there's a number, the Independence Foundation, and look to see who they're funding because they will be vetting those. And the small charities, the Philadelphia Foundation, also, those small charities that are startup will often go there early for their seed money. But I think your philanthropic dollars should be a lot like everything else. Like you should always take a 10 or 20% of them and put them at risk. Take, think, forget about the tried and true. They're, you know, the Red Cross, and I love the Red Cross, but they're going to raise money because they are the tried and true. But these emerging organizations, you, it, you know, high risk, high return. And if you lose it, you lose it. But at least when you've lost it, Risk money means that they've learned something that doesn't work, right? And what's the, how else do you progress in life unless you learn something that doesn't work? Eileen, we have learned so much from you today. I can't thank you enough for joining us. And also thank you for the amazing work that you do. Hang in there. Thank your team for us. Thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. And we'll meet again. <laughs> uh, yes, I'll look forward to it. And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. If you want to check out more about what Eileen is up to or find out what the trust is doing, you can reach them at ER Heisman 
NPT, that's all caps for NPT, or www.npttrust.org. Many thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, Georgina Blackett, Ellie Zaro, and Jeff Greenfield, my at-home tech team. And a special thanks to the intrepid staff at Wharton keeping our systems running. I'm Laura Zaro, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone, and stay generous. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.